This episode is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 178. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you chapter 36 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Kate learned the identity of the mysterious skunk morph who has apparently been stalking her. His name is Murakir Kunas, and he is a 1,300-year-old immortal from the Age of Heroes. He is also a clandestine operative with the Special Service Corps, a branch of the military so secret that Kate has never even heard of it before. Even the location of his current posting is classified above top secret. Kate now believes that Murakir's presence in her life is connected to a shadowy death cult which has been kidnapping people off the street and sacrificing them for magical power. Kate's allies have learned that this same pattern of murder kidnappings happened almost 30 years ago, in an event the press called the Midnight Snatcher Killings. Then, as now, a single suspect emerged to take the blame for the murders, only to have his story fall apart upon closer scrutiny. This reminded Kate of a warning Murakir had given her on their second meeting, a warning that she hadn't understood at the time. Don't let them distract you, Lieutenant. That's how they operate. They plant the truth inside a lie which they conceal inside an unrelated truth. This isn't the first time they've done it. Everything repeats itself. Kate is now convinced that Murakir knows something about the cult she's been chasing, but she's uncertain what to do with that information. How does he know who she is? Why did he try to reach out to her? And can she trust him, or has the old immortal gone crazy? In search of answers, Kate reached out to a contact at Lightbringer headquarters. Meanwhile, other people close to Kate are also getting caught up in this affair. Her police psychologist, Dr. Jared Tamlin, was kidnapped after he tried to prevent Kate from being returned to active duty prematurely. He has since been subjected to ritual testing by the cultists, some of whom believe he may be a prophesied savior known as the Vessel. The cult serves an entity called the Shackled God, which they believe is the true creator of the world, who was locked away on another plane of reality. Jared has already shown that the Shackled God can speak to him in his dreams, a talent Kate also possesses, though she doesn't understand the nature of the mysterious voice that keeps calling to her. Now, Jared waits in his prison cell for the next test. If he can convince the cult that he is the vessel, they will be sworn to obey him, and Jared thinks that's the only way he's getting out of this alive. Now, Jared is about to have company. The cultist kidnapped another of Kate's associates, Will Karenson, 
the boyfriend of her street-side compatriot, Callie Linder. Will was doing research on the cult in the library at Chisholm University, the elite school for Metamore's ruling class. He was accompanied by Kate's new partner, Lizzie, who is a Chisholm alum and knows a great deal about the school's peculiar culture. Lizzie helped Will uncover many important details about the cult's operations, which she then passed on to Kate. But then Lizzie had to leave, called back to Justice Tower to help Kate on another assignment. A few hours later, a security guard showed up at Will's computer terminal, where he slapped a sedative patch on the back of Will's neck. Before Will understood what was happening, his body went limp, and the world faded to black. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written in Red by Chris Lester Chapter 36 A large black skimmer pulled up to the curb beside Justice Tower at a quarter to three. Kate waved her thanks to the driver, then climbed into the back seat. The skimmer pulled smoothly out into traffic before Kate had even finished buckling her safety belt. The man sitting next to her was tall, about a handspan taller than even Kate's impressive height. Today, he wore his conservative black business suit with starched white shirt and narrow black tie. It made him look like an undertaker. The black wool was probably deathly hot in the sweltering pre-summer weather, but the interior of the skimmer was nicely air-conditioned. Kate leaned back against the headrest and sighed in relief as the cool air blew over her. The man raised his black sunglasses, pushing them back over his short blonde hair. His brilliant blue eyes glittered as he nodded to her in greeting. Good afternoon, Lieutenant. Kate nodded back, putting a little more of a bow into the gesture than he had. Hey, Janus, thanks for making the time. How's your stomach doing? Field Commander Janus Starson had taken two bullets from a sniper's rifle during their battle under the Citadel. The first round had destroyed one of the ceramic strike plates in Janus's body armor. The second had pushed through the resulting weak point, giving him a nasty gut wound. Lightbringer healing magic had gotten him up and moving again fairly soon thereafter, but that sort of damage still took a toll on the body. Janus smiled thinly. It could be worse. The doctor has set rather strict limits on my weightlifting regimen. How can I help you, Kate? Kate pulled out her phone and showed Janus the composite sketch she'd created of Murakir. You know this skunk? Janus looked at the picture. His mouth tightened into a line. I do. You've seen him recently? Twice, Kate said. Three times, if you count an appearance in one of my dreams. Janus raised an eyebrow. Believe me, it's even weirder than it sounds, Kate said. He says he's got something important to tell me, but then he gets spooked and runs off. She paused. I'm not imagining things, right? This is Murakir Kunis, the immortal? Janus's eyes narrowed fractionally. I can't be certain without seeing him directly, but yes, we've had reports that he is active and in the city. Kate frowned. What does that mean, active? 
Janus clenched a muscle in his jaw. You aren't cleared for this information, Lieutenant. Obviously, Kate agreed. She spread her hands. And just as obviously, I'm mixed up in it, whether I want to be or not. Who is this guy, and what does he want with me? Is he insane? Janus looked like the question pained him. That's a topic of some debate in Lightbringer circles. He fell silent a moment, clearly weighing his words. Murakir was part of the Age of Heroes, the generation that fought the dark wizard, Nasaj, and witnessed the fall of the gods. He was at Metamore for the Day of the Star Child, when Grandmother Mirai stripped the Pantheon of their power. Kate nodded. She'd suspected this was the case, as soon as she saw how old Murakir was. Murakir didn't follow the organized Lightbringer religion, Janus continued. He was part of an older tradition, a disciple of Artela. When the goddess fell, she went out to wander the world, to experience it like mortals did. She brought Murakir with her. Kate thought she knew what was coming next. Did Artela make him her lover? It was a common story among the fallen pantheon. A god or goddess became enchanted with one of their mortal companions and invested them with a portion of their own power. The process made the human consort immortal, though the god could withdraw their power at a later date if the relationship didn't work out. But Janus shook his head. Not as far as either of them is admitted. But Murakir saved Artela from an assassination attempt. He was mortally wounded in the process, and she gave him part of her power to save his life. Wow. Kate considered the implications of this. So why isn't he in Conardia with her? Artela had been the sovereign of the Alvin nation for centuries. Kate would have expected her immortal disciple to serve beside her. I don't know, Janus admitted. They had some sort of falling out, or cooling off. I don't know the details. He may have been jealous when she fell in love with the Alvin king. His frown deepened. Or it may have been about what happened to Murakir. Kate found herself leaning toward Janus, listening intently. What happened? He was kidnapped. Janus's eyes went distant, and Kate saw a flash of light in them that she didn't think was a reflection. Some kind of death cult captured him and tried to steal Artela's power from him. The Lothanasi never found out why, even when he was rescued. The ones who had captured him took their own lives so they couldn't be interrogated. Kate was starting to feel dizzy again. Everything repeats itself. But they failed, right? Only partially. Janus's eyes turned back to Kate, and she saw the anger there, a cold rage at what had been done to one of Metamore's heroes. Murakir survived, but his power became... tainted. Bound up with something else, some entity outside the material plane. We don't know what it is, but we know its power waxes and wanes over the centuries. When it lies dormant, it takes most of Murakir's power with it, and he sleeps. Janus's lip twitched. That's what he calls it, anyway. It's more like a deep coma. There's a secure facility where the Ministry of Defense looks after him. It's their job to keep him alive until he wakes up. Kate marveled at the thought of an entire military installation dedicated to protecting one unconscious man. And what happens when he wakes up? Nothing good, Janus said darkly. 
When Murakir is awake, so is the entity. Its cultists start moving again, stirring up chaos. Murakir figures out what they're doing and tries to stop it. If he succeeds, he goes back to sleep. And he does all this alone? Kate asked. No, he recruits mortals to help him. He calls them pawns, and I think he's only half-joking. Kate didn't like the sound of that. But no Lightbringers? And what about the Pantheon? If he's from the Age of Heroes, wouldn't he and Lord Richter know each other? Janus chuckled grimly. Oh yes, they know each other. But their relationship is... complicated. Janus hesitated, apparently debating whether to say more. At last, he admitted, there's a woman involved. Kate put her head in her hand. There's always a woman involved. Fucking men and their goddamned cocks. Language, Janus murmured. Oh, bite me. I'm not a lightbringer. I'll cuss if I want to. Seemingly despite himself, Janus smiled. We do try to bring Murakir up to speed when he wakes up. It can be decades or centuries between cycles, so he's often confused about how things work. But he's suspicious and slow to accept help unless he's in control of the situation. Kate chewed her bottom lip. So, is he insane? Like, literally, is he mentally ill? Janus sighed. I don't know if anyone can answer that. He spent the last twelve centuries fighting a secret society, one that keeps growing back like a cancer every time he thinks he's beaten it. It's bound to make you paranoid. He paused, weighing his words again. Then again, every time he wakes, the cult is on the move again. He's never been wrong about that. Yeah, well, he's right about it this time, too. Kate briefly summarized the series of kidnappings and murders she and her allies had been investigating. She also described the skull and arch tattoo they had found on the cultists' bodies. That's them, all right, Janus said. Or at least it fits with our records of the group. They haven't been active since my father's time. That reminds me, Kate said. I was doing some research at the Matthias Library on Sunday. Did you know that we're fourth cousins? My dad's mom was named Marielle Starson. Janus frowned thoughtfully. Marielle. I think she may still be alive, actually. I'm not close to that side of the family. He paused. If you like, I can try to put you in touch with her. Kate was surprised and strangely touched. All right, sure. Thanks, Janus. Of course. Janus's eyes went distant again. It does explain why Alemisil bonded to you. What brought you to the library? This case, actually, Kate said. The cult seems like it's singling out some of its victims for special treatment. Instead of killing them right away, they keep them a long time, torturing them. And all the folks they did that to were related. Interesting, Janus said. You think they're targeting people based on some kind of mystic heritage? Bloodline magic, Kate agreed. What for, I don't know. But those old Metamore heroes made a lot of appearances in the victim's family trees. She sighed. But it's one more mystery I don't have time for. I wish there was somebody I could talk to who's actually fought these bastards, besides one possibly crazy skunk morph. Janus's eyes glinted again. Then you're in luck. 
I was researching Murakira's activities during his last cycle, and I found the list of the pawns who helped him. I recognized one of the names. Kate raised her eyebrows. Yeah? Someone I know? Yes, Janus said. Captain Joe Montgomery. Jared woke to the sound of someone crying in the next cell. He rolled over onto his hands and knees, his joints still aching from hours of torture, and crawled over to the hole in the wall. Psst, he hissed. Hey, is someone over there? The crying eased, though the voice that replied still quavered with emotion. Yes? Who's there? The voice sounded young, male, and very frightened. My name's Jared. What's yours? A sniffle. Will? The other voice said. How did you get here, Will? I... I was kidnapped. Just saying the words made him sound like he was about to start crying again. I think I was drugged. There was this guard, and he put something on my skin, and then... Then you passed out and woke up here, Jared said. The same thing happened to me. It... it did? When did they take you? Will asked. Were you at the library, too? No, I was at a police station, Jared said. It was Monday afternoon. Monday, Will said. It sounded like he was thinking through something. When he spoke again, his voice was a little steadier. Today's Tuesday. Or it was when they grabbed me. I don't know what day it is now. This place does that to you, Jared said. What library were you at? Chisholm University. I was with this police detective. We were researching the cult. He made a sound that was something between a laugh and a sob. <laughs> I guess we must have been on the right track. Jared thought about his dream. Was the detective named Catherine Kittane? Huh? Uh, no. Her name was Lizzie. She's a leopard morph. Jared frowned. No one he knew, then. He wondered how this detective had ended up on the case. Maybe she was one of Shaw's people. He vaguely remembered seeing a leopard morph at the SID office. Katane might still be involved, then. What did you find out about the cult? Do you know what they want? No, Will said, sounding morose. We know they've kidnapped a lot of people. Most of them they kill right away. Some they keep for a long time, then torture them, then kill them. We think it's about black magic, that they're killing people to release mana and saving it up for something big. But we don't know what they're trying to do. Something big, Jared thought, like making contact with the shackled god. Adrastia had said they needed time to prepare before the next stage of the tests. Could these murders be part of the preparations? Jared knew he shouldn't be surprised, but the news that the cultists had already killed most of the people they kidnapped made his situation even more unsettling. How many people have they taken? I don't know. There were a lot of files, though. Maybe a couple dozen? I'm sorry, I don't remember. It's all right, Jared said. It was a ridiculous thing to say, of course. Nothing about this situation was all right, but he needed Will calm and thinking clearly. I can tell you this isn't the first time it's happened, Will offered. When I was... taken, 
I had found some stuff about another batch of kidnappings in 1973. Everything happened the same way. Street rats disappeared, and the bodies showed up drained of blood. They even caught one guy who confessed to the murders, just like this time. That was news to Jared. Someone confessed? This time, I mean. Yeah, this guy from Chisholm. Nevin something. The police detective I mentioned earlier? They were classmates together. Jared thought about the young man who had called himself Recludius. He had a difficult mission, he said. One that is necessary, if we are to continue our work. This man was arrested today? Last night, Will said. They caught him at his house. There were five dead people in his basement. The police think they were other cultists, but they died in some kind of ritual, and now the police can't do an augury to find out what happened there. Slowly, Jared sat back on his heels. I think I met that man, he said. It was possible Recludius was one of the sacrifices, but based on Jared's sense of the man, he suspected that the difficult mission would have been staying alive and in jail, not dying for the cause. He thought he was helping to save the world. That's crazy, Will said. Jared could imagine the kid shaking his head. All of this is crazy. What are these people doing? I I'm going to die in the dark and I don't even know why. Will was edging toward hysteria again, his voice quavering and thick with tears. I do, Jared said suddenly. The words surprised even him, but he pushed ahead. I know what they're trying to do. Will stopped breathing for a full five seconds. What? he asked, finally. They're trying to release their god back into the world, Jared said. Then he told Will everything that Recludius and Adrastia had told him, about the shackled god, the vessel, the trials, and their mad hope for a world set to rights by its creator. That sounds like the second coming, Will said dubiously, or a really twisted version of it. I think it's safe to say they've been borrowing ideas from a lot of places, Jared agreed. So they kept you alive because they think you might be their savior? So they say, Jared said. I've already passed two of the tests. They're supposed to give me the third one soon. Will was silent for a moment before replying. But why would you want them to? Because I'm not ready to die, Jared said bluntly. I'm in an insane game designed by madmen, and the only way out is to win. If I prove that I'm the vessel, they have to obey me. I can tell them to let me go, to stop hurting anyone else, and they'll have to do it. Will scoffed. And you believe them? Oddly enough, yes, Jared admitted. They're clearly delusional, but the delusion is a coherent one. Their core belief is all centered around the vessel, around the belief that he is the one who will save the world. I think they will adjust their other ideas as necessary in order to protect that core belief. Rationalization is a powerful thing. Will fell silent for a time. Jared's own thoughts turned in tight circles, revisiting his conversations with Recludius and Adrastia. Was his assessment of them accurate? Would the cult truly release him if he passed all their tests? Or was he grasping at straws, seizing on a mad hope of his own because it was the only hope left to him? Well, that might not be true, he conceded, 
If Will and this police detective were looking into the cult, others might be too. Perhaps he would be rescued. But Jared had tried pinning his hopes on others before. He had hoped his wife Catherine would be rescued from the vampires. She had died. Years later, he had fallen in love with another woman, Danny. He had hoped she would leave the Psy Collective to be with him. She hadn't. No, Jared was done hoping for things other people would do for him. If he put his hope in anything now, it would be in his own strength to survive these trials, and his own ability to understand these madmen, and use their delusion against them. If you're right, Will said, interrupting his thoughts. Hmm, Jared said. If you're right about the cult, and they listen to you, will you tell them to let me go? For a moment, Jared was at a loss for words. The kid sounded so uncertain, as if Jared might actually leave someone else down in this hellhole while he escaped. He almost took offense, until he reminded himself that Will had no idea who he was, or what sort of person he might be. Of course, Jared said. He put every bit of sincerity and conviction he could muster into the words. I'm not going to let anyone else die if I can do something about it. That's a promise, Will. Okay, Will said. He still didn't sound convinced. Then, um, I guess good luck trying to become the savior of the world? Jared laughed. <laughs> what the hell? I'll take it. And that's the end of chapter 36. Come back next time, when Kate goes looking for answers which means asking some uncomfortable questions of Captain Montgomery. James Baldwin said, You write in order to change the world, knowing perfectly well that you probably can't, but also knowing that literature is indispensable to the world. The world changes according to the way people see it, and if you alter, even by a millimeter, the way people look at reality, then you can change it. So come with me, and let your perspectives change. It's time for the weekly writing report. I wrote 5,826 words this week, over the course of 7.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 752 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 133 days without breaking my chain. Homecoming is now in Chapter 24, and John has once more rejoined Kate and the rest of their group. I can feel the story edging toward its climax, no pun intended, and I've been thinking about how to amp up the drama in preparation for the end. I like where the story has gone so far, and what the characters have accomplished, but I need to raise the stakes in order to give this book a satisfying ending. And it definitely will be a book— the manuscript is now over 67,000 words, which is well into novel territory, especially for the romance genre. I am hoping to tie everything up by around 80,000 words. Over on the Patreon feed, I've released Carol Foote's latest piece of bonus art. This is the second image from Part 2 of To Walk in Shadow, and it shows Ball, Jessup, and Seong Jin arriving at Castle Dauntless. 
I've also put in a sneak peek for my $3 patrons and above, which is about Kate's mother, Lisa, and her dog, Miko. Look for more sneak peeks of Homecoming in the coming months. If you like this show and want to help me keep making it, becoming a patron is the single best way to support me. All of my patrons get access to my exclusive Behind the Episode podcast, where you'll hear author commentaries on all of my episodes. These lightly edited podcasts are unscripted, and they generally run between 30 and 40 minutes. If you want insights into my creative process, the inspirations behind the stories and the characters, and bonus bits of world-building you can't find anywhere else, this is the show for you. Plus, all patrons get exclusive Metamore City bonus art, from Carol Foote and other amazing artists. Just go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester, take a look at the reward levels, and make a pledge today. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.